Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Art of Living interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelsang. We have a fantastic interview and subject today with our guest, historian, author, and Smithsonian Associate, C.W. Goodyear, whom I'll introduce in just a moment. But quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 726th episode when we spoke with Joe Lindsay, who has written the latest article in Bicycling Magazine entitled, Ugh, I'm in the car again. The best bike is one that gets you out of your car. It's in Bicycling Mag Magazine right now. You can check it out. Find it in our show notes today. But two weeks ago, I spoke with author and Smithsonian associate Craig Nelson, who's written the new book, V is for Victory. Craig Nelson shares with us how FDR's skillful leadership turned a nation wary of war into an arsenal of democracy, ready to take on the dangers of another world war. Excellent subjects for our Not Old Better show audience. If you missed those shows, along with any others, you can go back and check them out, along with my entire back catalog of shows, all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. You can Google Not Old Better and get everything you need about us. Our guest, C.W. Goodyear, will shine a spotlight on a forgotten president and progressive statesman who tried both to improve in America in political and cultural flux and keep it intact throughout a contentious time. C.W. Goodyear will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, and the title of his presentation there is Rediscovering James Garfield from Radical to Unifier. Please check out our website or Smithsonian Associates website for more details. Far from being simply a president who was assassinated weeks after taking office, James Garfield might be the most accomplished U.S. American statesman of the 19th century, says C.W. Goodyear. Drawing on his new book, President Garfield from Radical to Unifier, C.W. Goodyear will tell us today about a portrait of a man born in a log cabin who, by his 20s, had become a respected preacher, a state senator, and college president. C.W. Goodyear will share with us how Garfield was the youngest general fighting for the Union, and before the Civil War's end, was the youngest congressman, as well as one of its more forward-looking, but the country is still learning about President James Garfield. This section comes from the prologue of the book, and it, it came very naturally to me when I was in the writing process. This is a, section, a, a selection from Garfield's trip home to Ohio from the nominating convention, which completely unexpectedly made him the next Republican nominee for president. And as he's traveling east, as he's going home, the country is being awoken to who he was and all of the things that he accomplished. So uh, th this passage reflects what the country is learning about, you know, its next president uh, as he travels you know, back to his home base. Many of Garfield's political triumphs are lost to readers in that acceleration. He had been the youngest participant in America's radical revolution and remains perhaps the last still politically alive. He had chaired committees governing the country's military, budget, census, and currency. He had trimmed many millions in federal spending. He had single-handedly investigated a president, swindled an Indian tribe out of its ancestral lands, 
and even establish a new wing of government, the first Department of Education? Shall we enlarge the boundaries of citizenship and make no provision to increase the intelligence of the citizen? He dared Congress during that particular fight. His speeches on these topics and more, as later compiled by a colleague, would be found to present an invaluable compendium of the political history of the most important era through which the national government has ever passed. Garfield has also seemingly found time for impressive activities outside the Capitol. Republicans as varied as William McKinley, James Blaine, and Benjamin Harrison court his stump services. Statesmen jaded by a lifetime of sappy speeches have reported their cynicism cured by a single Garfield performance. It was eloquent, but it was far more than that, one would later write with wonder. It was honestly argumentative. There was no sophistry of any sort. Every subject was taken up fairly. Indeed, every person present, even if Greenbacker or demagogue, must have said within himself, this man is a friend arguing with friends. He makes me his friend and now speaks to me as such. That, of course, is our guest today, author C.W. Goodyear, reading from his new book, President Garfield, From Radical to Unifier. Please join me in welcoming to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates, Art of Living interview series on radio and podcast, Smithsonian Associate, C.W. Goodyear. C.W. Goodyear, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. It's good to talk to you, too. You're a historian, a biographer. You're going to be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. We will put links so that our audience can find out more about you, about your upcoming presentation at Smithsonian Associates, about your work, and particularly about this wonderful new book that you've shared with me. You've generously read from the book just now. President Garfield is the title of the book. It's really excellent. We're going to get into that, but let's start with your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation. Maybe just tell us briefly about what you'll be talking about there. Uh, of course, the book, President Garfield, From Radical to Uni- to Unifier, and uh, maybe in particular how you're going to use Zoom to engage our audience there. Yeah, no, I'm terribly excited. So I'll be speaking in later July uh, to Smithsonian Associates, and uh, it's going to be a pretty comprehensive look at what I think is one of the most remarkable American lives of our entire nation's history. Uh, it, I don't think it's sufficient to say that Garfield is just one of the undiscovered gems of the American presidency, one of those uh, you know, valuable lives that have kind of been neglected. I think his life and everything that he witnessed and participated in represents a, a really phenomenal, vivid, and very complex look at a forgotten but relevant period of American history, which is essentially uh, the Civil War through to the Gilded Age. So, you know, the, this uh, existential conflict in our history, the aftermath, and then the aftermath to the aftermath, throughout all of which uh, this very impressive American statesman and ultimately uh, star-crossed one uh, participated in and witnessed from a national perspective. So to have so much uh, time and freedom that Zoom and interacting with Smithsonian offers, I think I'm going to be able to give a very compelling portrait of not just a man, but his times. And uh, what's what's nice also about Zoom is I'll be able to bring in a lot of media, as in uh, visual cues and examples of his actual writing that I wouldn't be able to in person. 
And so it's one of those instances where technology augments rather than takes away from uh, you know, the physical presence. So I'm very excited about that. There's also this poetic significance to it, too. Garfield was actually on the Smithsonian's uh, Board of Regents for several years, and he described that as his uh, favorite and most uh, significant uh, form of public service. Uh, I, I disagree uh, because, uh, you know, we got to be real here because he ended up being president. <laughs> but it's it, it's nice that I'm able to uh, talk to the Smithsonian about one of its alumni, for lack of a better term. <laughs> yeah, how nice. That that is that's a wonderful part of his history and and the book is just such fantastic history. I'm I'm hoping that you're going to share some of the photos from the book because they're amazing. The research that you must have done to have come up with those photographs, they're just the fantastic set of of photos mm. by I want to make sure and emphasize to my audience to to just encourage them to pick up a copy of the book so that they can see those photos but I imagine they'll get a chance to see some of that in your presentation of course using zoom yeah they will and they'll also get to see I think it was the golden age of caricatures <laughs> so they get to see uh, you know we think we live in a dirty time of political rhetoric the things that they and I and I include as many of these as I can in the book but um yeah, no, it, it, it's just uh, this will become clear as we answer, you know, as we go through this conversation. Mm-hmm. But uh, there, there is just the challenge of his life is um, it, it's not lack of material. It's where to, you know, uh, kill your darlings and, <laughs> you know, where to cut your losses without going too deep. As I say, the the book is excellent. Of course, it's President Garfield from Radical to Unifier. I have to tell you right up front, and, and maybe this is the case with others, but I, I just certainly going to be honest and, and say that my my own knowledge and awareness of President Garfield was was really limited. And, and I wonder, do you think that's because President Garfield's term in office was so short? Was it was it something else? Why? Why do we know so little about about President Garfield? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think it's a few different things. And But, but before I dive into them, I want to tell you, you're not the only one. Uh, this this <laughs> is you. a systemic amnesia about this yeah. president. And yeah. even when I started work on his life, um, you know, I would tell friends about this at parties and then and they would go away and they'd come back five minutes later and say, you know, with somebody else and go, and, his, and Charlie here is writing a book about McKinley. So they've already <laughs> forgotten him. <laughs> no, but it, yeah, no, it's a few different things about, you know, why this man was this this great statesman was forgotten. Uh, the first, I think, is the era, just the time. The Gilded Age is kind of infamously this period of collective national amnesia. Uh, it's this vague period where there are a lot of very strong societal forces at play. The, the union is growing, but there's this, this overriding disparity in the nation's society between its different uh, races, between its socioeconomic classes and its politics. And it's, but there's no central conflict of the time. So it just kind of all fades into this gray mist. And that extends to the presidents. You know, the Gilded Age presidents, Garfield included, they all were generally from the Midwest. They all served relatively few terms or at least interrupted terms. And they all insisted on growing facial hair. And the result is a bunch of people who look very much the same and who, in terms of accomplishment, it's hard to point at one and identify them as the great man of that time. And I think Garfield's a bit of a victim of that. Uh, secondly, there is also the way that we tend to remember presidents 
you know, when we, uh, the way American historical memory works when it comes to who occupies the White House, we ask ourselves, what did this person accomplish when they are in power? And are they still, is their name still on a lot of buildings today? And that's, uh, I admit, a fairly logical way to try to remember presence. But the result is a lot of statesmen get left by the wayside. The greater arc of their political careers and what they accomplish gets kind of lost because of this myopic focus on what they did when they held the highest office rather than all the offices they held beforehand and all the things they accomplished beforehand. And then third, yeah, you're right. The most important thing when it comes to why Garfield has been forgotten is the way he, the way his amazing political arc ended. He was the last president to be born in a log cabin, but he was the second to be assassinated. He was killed um, not even before finishing his first, the first year of his first term. And he was actually shot uh, essentially three months into his first term. And the spectacle of that ending uh, really served to eclipse uh, the, 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 the life that had come beforehand, uh, this life that had started in the Ohio frontier, you know, with this man being raised by a single mother and uh, the life of great accomplishment. And so those things combined tend to leave Garfield essentially as a historical footnote, which, you know, the deeper I dug into my research, the more I realized that that is undeserved and the public, you know, there's a very compelling story underneath all that maybe one of the most compelling political arcs in American history. Mm-hmm. And so that was the motivation. That was what, as soon as I discovered this about this man, that's what kind of kicked off this adventure really. Mm-hmm. What was it that you found about the story of his leadership capabilities and, and his character? Because you, you talk about, you know, this, this man who, was um had had just these amazing talents and and was a unifier but was a radical at the same time talk a little bit about what really struck you as interesting and fascinating about his his style yeah well the the his evolution politically uh, he was one of the long. So before I dive into the, the the weeds here, the evolution of his politics was a product of how long he was in power. This man was in Congress from 1863 when he was the youngest congressman in the country to 1881 when he went into the White House. And that stretch was almost unheard of by that time. So his perspective on the era was fantastic. And naturally, he evolved over time as conditions change and he changed his mind about things. But the things that astonished me about his leadership style I think first, and this was true in his era, this ended up being ironically why he was elected president. I was astonished by his gentleness. Uh, he was a exceptional, exceptionally gentle uh, political operator. For somebody who had so much influence and so much power, he was loath to shut anybody down in debate, and he was remarkably kind even friendly with his bitterest political rivals. He had this unmatched ability to separate politics from personality. And uh, there are anecdotes abound about this person in a bitterly partisan era, overcoming the obstacles of that. Uh, one of, he has a few great quotes on this. He, he once said, I never feel that to slap a man in the face is any real gain to the truth. <laughs> which is a very nice way of saying that, uh, you know, he, he refused to get down and dirty when it came to 
political combat. Um, he also had this very, there's also this interesting anecdote about uh, this, uh, and I, I include this in the prologue of the book. A freshman Democrat came forward with a story uh, after Garfield's assassination, and he said once he was matched with Garfield in a debate in the House. And he found this prospect so intimidating that he went behind closed doors and he went to Garfield in private and he explained how nervous he was to have to face Garfield on behalf of his party in the House. And so what Garfield did was he actually shared with this opponent of his, his notes, the speech that he planned to give. And he walked the person through his timing and the points that he was going to make in order to make this person to get them out of a bind. And hearing stories about that, uh, it just stands in great, bright contrast to what we see a lot these days and what we expect out of our politicians. So that shocked me, that characteristic of his. Uh, second, I was really amazed by his foresight. He, for somebody who was in power for so long, he had an uncanny ability to look around the corner. It's almost as if he was into it. He was, he was, he had some kind of, um, like, uh, looking glass where he could see where future events were going. Uh, at the beginning of the civil war, uh, the, one of the reasons that he ended up actually joining the union army and getting a commission as a, as, as an officer was because he one saw the political opportunity in it. He thought that the country was going to be run by whoever fought in that war. Uh, and then two, he saw it as he, he knew that it was eventually going to assume these grand ideological proportions, and that it would be one of the most important conflicts in the history of not just the nation, but the world. Uh, he wrote this at the beginning of the war. I see no possible end to the war with the, until the South is subjugated. The war will soon assume the shape of slavery and freedom. The world will understand itself. And this was at a time when you know, no one in the country was thinking that the Civil War would last any amount of time. And they thought, you know, that beating the South would be as easy as marching a few Union divisions you know, south of the Mason-Dixon line. And um, also the official position of the Union was that it was not a war about freedom versus slavery. It was about the sovereignty of the Union. But Garfield knew how things would play out. He knew how things would go. And this repeated itself as he, you know, gathered power into Reconstruction. And later on, he had this you know, he really knew how events were going to play out. And that really shocked me. And then third, I was really astonished by his willingness to yield. You know, the, going back to that first point of gentleness, like personally, politically, he was also incredibly open-minded in a way that many of his allies accused him of being soft. Both Frederick Douglass and Ulysses Grant said the same thing about him, which is that Garfield had no moral backbone. And so he's a very interesting case study about in an unreasonable time as his as not just the Republicans and Democrats of his time, but the Republicans of his period as well are just fracturing and getting increase, increasingly bitter and partisan and uh, irrational to the point of threatening civil war again. There is this person who is constantly in the middle of every single crisis, talking to both sides and making managing to get deals done. And I, I think I wish I could tell you that that was an entirely positive story, but mm. compromise is not a clean uh, virtue. Mm. You know, it's it's not something that's entirely positive. And I think Garfield's life exemplifies that as well. So that that also struck me that 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 pathological um, reasonableness that was just so central to his character. All of that made him really compelling to me. 
Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with C.W. Charlie Goodyear. Charlie Goodyear is author of the new book, President Garfield, From Radical to Unifier. Charlie Goodyear is a historian and biographer and will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up uh, in July. We will have links and times and details in the show notes today. But Charlie, the book is getting great reviews already. John Lewis Gaddis has reviewed the book very positively. Pulitzer Prize winning author James McPherson has reviewed it. One of my favorite authors, Walter Isaacson, has reviewed the book too. And and I, I wanted to just read this to you because I just thought this is just really uh, powerful, especially because Walter Isaacson says this. He says, in an era polarized like our own, James Garfield went from being a firebrand to an engineer of compromise and healing. Goodyear chronicles his evolution in a meticulously researched reappraisal. That that was really Nice high praise coming from Walter Isaacson. Congratulations on the book, Charlie, and and um, and all of this amazing research. I want to talk to you about um, President Garfield's presidency and, and the challenges of the time. You've you've referred to this as kind of the Gilded Age, and of course, it was an unreasonable time times during the Civil War. What what challenges did he face in particular? And I guess most importantly. How do you think he handled those challenges? Mm. Yeah, so I would break it into, if you looked at the macro political events, the movement of the nation, uh, the, the main challenges were, uh, in essence, one, the, uh, the, the, the return of the South to democratic rule and the impact that that had on civil rights, essentially the reversal of Reconstruction. Uh, the much of the ground that had been won by Garfield and his allies back in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War. So the uh, ending of slavery, the, equal, the the passing of the 14th and 15th Amendment, which, equaled, which created equal citizenship rights and voting rights, that had essentially fallen apart. And Garfield and the Republicans who had survived the rise and fall of that time, they were left in a very tricky situation that put their principles against political practicality. And so one of the things Garfield was still agonizing over, even after you know the fall of the South, was how to nudge America back on track and get it to a place where in future, not during his lifetime, he thought that ship had sailed, uh, that equality of citizenship, you know, the, the rights that we and virtues that we were founded on would be in practice. So that was that was one. Uh, second was the issue of uh, westward expansion. Uh, there, as the nation had reached the Pacific Coast, there was surprisingly this is what I'd say is a, a, an advanced stage of westward expansion. There was this perceived immigration crisis from Chinese immigrants to the West, and that was creating a lot of racial tension. And 
And uh, that melded very uncomfortably with this capital and labor tension that was emerging during the Gilded Age. There was this perception that the big uh, employers of that time, the, the robber barons, were exploiting immigrant labor at the expense also of the white working class. And that was fueling a lot of animosity. And that emerged as one of the campaign issues of Garfield's time. And then third, there is this overriding issue. And this is a very important one. This ended up actually being the thing that contributed to Garfield's death. Uh, there was this issue of civil service reform. Uh, the, the American government of that time had no professional civil service. Every single member, or at least the vast majority of members of the federal bureaucracy, were political appointees who owed their jobs not to you know, some department somewhere necessarily, but rather to their congressmen who had managed to uh, appoint them to that job. And the result of that norm is that over the course of Reconstruction and the Gilded Age, uh, these vast corrupt political machines had risen up on the national level. And uh, they were essentially putting cronies in control of the U.S. government and then reaping personal and political profit from being able to sell jobs in the government to the highest bidder. And that in turn encouraged a lot of criminal activity. So, uh, you know, a proportion I like to use is that a lot of senators at that time were 75 percent politician, 25 percent crime boss. <laughs> and um, that uh, you could argue whether that's changed today. But uh, <laughs> right. the. Uh, the, but but uh, there was this great debate and demand from the American citizenry for for the cleaning up of the federal bureaucracy, the creation of new norms and strict bureaucratic procedures and tenure, rather than this laissez-faire, whoever's in power gets to dispense with all the federal jobs. And that issue had ended up badly dividing the Republican Party of Garfield's time. The Republican Party of Garfield's time, when he was elected, was in two real camps. And they were very vividly named in one corner. And I'm describing it like it's a boxing match. Um, <laughs> you had the stalwarts who identified themselves as true Republicans who were loyal to president, ex-president Ulysses S. Grant, and they wanted him to run for a third term. And they were the worst abusers of the patronage system. They were seen as the corruptionists, the machine bosses, the, the people who were unapologetically abusing their political authority to enrich themselves and their followers. And then the other corner, you had another group called the half-breeds. And the half-breeds were seen as not being real Republicans, as you can imply from the name. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were also fairly corrupt, but they were led by a grant rival called James Blaine. And these parties were in a dog-eat-dog war to the point that at the 1880 convention, Garfield was nominated uh, because he was the last person both of those factions, or at least followers of both of those factions, could agree on. And so the one of the, the, the kind of the sort of Damocles that was hanging over President Garfield was how to manage these factions and also maybe do away with the source of their power, which was this you know patronage system. So Garfield was toying with the idea of civil service reform. How did he deal with all of those things? I think the answer is that he dealt with them as best as he could. When it came to the issue of racial rights, he was very forward-looking, but he knew what fights he could not win. Uh, so he appointed a lot of black Americans to top federal jobs, and that, including Frederick Douglass and Bruce Blanche. And the significance of that is that it inoculated both white and black Americans to the spectacle of black Americans in positions of public authority. 
he wasn't the first to do that, but he was one of the most aggressive. Uh, he also had this meeting with Frederick Douglass where he asked Frederick Douglass for a list, a list of prominent black Americans that Garfield could appoint to be uh, uh, emissaries and consuls to Europe. Uh, that was seen as a very big uh, thing that he would have been able to accomplish had he lived. Uh, but he also did a variety of other things, including fa- he cleared the way for the founding of the American Red Cross. But the, the defining thing, the, the thing that we all reap the benefit of today was the passage of civil service reform. Garfield, the way his attempt to manage the balance of power in the Republican Party backfired. And the result of that backfiring was that he was killed. He was shot. He, his failure to manage the relationship with the stalwarts inspired essentially a mentally ill man to shoot Garfield in the back. And that kicked off the whole, uh, a, uh, this long protracted decline. He took a very long time to die. But over the course of his death, the cause of civil service reform, which was the issue that he and uh, the stalwarts had been essentially fighting over, uh, was accelerated by generations. The country essentially realized how unsustainable the system was, the, the, the power system that had inspired this mentally ill man to shoot Garfield. And the result was this upswell of political power that ended up in Garfield's successor's term, President Arthur's term, in civil service reform. So the reason today that your taxman, your post office worker, your sheriff even, are not political appointees, that they're actual like career civil servants, it's because of the way Garfield died and the yields on that, the, 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 the amount of clean government that has enabled, the amount of savings that's led in efficiencies and bureaucracy, that has had untold benefits for the American public. And uh, it, it's something that it was a little bit beyond his control because, of course, he wasn't alive to see it. But that is something we still should be grateful to Garfield for today. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I'm a former civil servant myself, and and so I, I benefited from from all of that. Uh, the, and, and <laughs> you certain, probably had a lot more regulations. So actually, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so, <laughs> so, uh, and um, you also probably were less liable to uh, take from the public, you know, coffers as mm-hmm. much. So mm-hmm. financially, at least, uh, you know, maybe. Maybe you could have benefited from a lack of civil service reform, but the American <laughs> public, we, we've benefited from it. <laughs> yeah, and so that that outcome, I think, was was so positive. It's a shame he didn't, he wasn't around to see it. He, of course, was killed, as you say. He was assassinated while in office. So we know what the outcome was. We know that civil servants were. Um, these government jobs were were just radically changed as a result of this activity. What was it that the murderer hoped to achieve? What did the culprit want? Yeah, that's a very good question. And um, you know, just as a side note, you know, bureaucracy sounds as though it's the dullest subject on the planet. Mm-hmm. But when you hear about how the framework of the American government mm-hmm. got built out and how it got cleaned up because mm-hmm. of this, you know, murder, yeah, yeah. that suddenly becomes a very suddenly its relevance becomes incredibly clear. This the 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 killer, the the shooter was a follower of the stalwarts. 
or at least he claimed to be. In his logic, and this is where his being mentally ill becomes relevant, he thought that by shooting Garfield, the, the successor to Garfield, who was a stalwart named you know, Garfield's vice president, uh, Chester Arthur, he thought that Chester Arthur would be so grateful and so indebted to the assassin that President Arthur would award the assassin with whatever post in the federal government he wanted. So you can see how the, 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 the neurons weren't exactly well connected in that person's uh, brain. Um, but it depends with Garfield who you think the real killer actually is, uh, you, or at least you could argue that, because he was shot. He did not die immediately. He actually took 80 days to die. And he did not die from the gunshot itself. He actually died from an infection that many have argued was actually introduced into his body by his own doctors. Uh, his shooting happened at a, at an auspicious time in American history. It was when things were, a lot of scientific forces were still at work, but there was still a lot of pseudoscience in the air. And American doctors hadn't really gotten onto the idea of germ theory. That was seen as this foreign European idea. There's this great quote from an American doctor at the time of Garfield's shooting, talking about this idea of, um, antiseptics. And he essentially says, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is basically what he says. If we are to believe in antiseptics, then we must assume for some reason that there are millions and millions of invisible organisms coating every substance in eyesight. And he meant that sarcastically, of course, but uh, he ended up being ironically quite right. So the, the parable of Garfield's death and his slow death, that ended up increasing the drama for the American public. The, the nation was essentially hooked to news from the White House for 80 days. And um, it served, ironically, as this great unifying moment. The politics that Garfield had practiced in his life were fulfilled in the way he died. And, and uh, if it was, it, it almost reads as though it was uh, written that way by some greater power in, in terms of just that poetic significance. It was the politics of passion too. What, what was it? He he was a, he was a very passionate man. What what did you find that really struck you so much about his his passion for this change and and for taking on some of these um, the stalwarts and 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 others? Yeah, he thought very deeply. He he was, I'd argue, maybe the the most intellectual person to ever hold the presidency. Uh, one of my early editorial decisions when I was going through his diary for the year 1878, I found that he headlined every or most every single day with a different Shakespearean verse. Hmm. Wow. And so, you know, I saw that and I was like, well, I'm going to use these to headline every single chapter. <laughs> That's impressive. But no, he was an incredibly deep thinker and he had a, he had a wonderful, he, he was calm, but passionate as you describe it. And that's what makes him such a great witness to his time. Uh, he had a very romantic vision for what the, the, for, for the direction of America. As I mentioned before, he, he, he went through this political evolution. He had been one of the pioneers of equal racial rights in America at a crucial time, but then he came to witness and be someone responsible for the regression of that progress. Mm. And when you, by the time he's president-elect, he has yielded all of his hopes for a future better America to the, to the next generation. And 
he was left to be this predictor of future grace and future equality. And that is, I think, a very compelling subject to hear this person really wrestle with these topics. Mm -hmm. And um, his relationship as well when it comes to passion and power, he was unique in how afraid he was of the presidency. Uh, This isn't me saying that he didn't want the presidency, but he certainly acted as though he didn't want the presidency throughout his life. And in his private writings, he sensed this great trepidation he has for it. His political career from 1863 to 1881, he had seen so many of his peers realize that they might be president one day. And he noticed in them, one after the other, that as soon as they got the idea they could be president, they became ineffective politicians and their Mm -hmm. careers ended ignominiously. And so he saw this happening so many times. He just he coined a name for this. He called it the presidential fever, and he described it as the sickness that gets transmitted around Washington. That whenever somebody is competent or very good or prominent, eventually they get infected with the presidential fever, and they realize they could be president one day. And in trying to aim for that office, it ends up killing what made them good statesmen in the first place. So Garfield wrote all these resolutions that oh, I'm I, I will never succumb to it. I will never feel its pressure, and. Uh, you know, throughout the course of his congressional career as well, he saw so many presidents uh, come into office on high hopes and then leave or otherwise end their administrations poorly. Uh, you know, he saw from the perspective of a congressional seat, uh, Lincoln, Johnson, Grant, and Hayes each come in and each leave, and it had never been a good story. I mean, he'd been involved in those administrations and participated, you know, in a lot of their policy moves. And it had never ended well. And uh, the country, you could argue, by the time of his presidency, seemed in worse condition than ever before. And so he fought, at least outwardly, against receiving the nomination. It was forced upon him in a very public way, and he felt obliged to accept. But very interestingly, and this is before he ends up, he he wins the election, and then he has these nightmares about what awaits ahead. And they're full of the symbolism of doom and gloom and, and fear. And they ended up being quite well-placed because there was doom ahead for him. This office that he'd been running from and fearful of that he saw as anathema to, you know, useful uh, political service, you know, it it was going to be the end of him too. And there's something very powerful in that and how he seemed to subconsciously recognize that. And then his legacy, the way he, the way he ended and the way he died he it's almost as if parts of his soul got dispersed across the country because so many people were inspired by him and how his really remarkable life ended so tragically. He was the, you know, he'd been born in a log cabin raised by a single mother and then had done these incredible things, had been the youngest union general in the civil war, youngest congressman, uh, Supreme court attorney wrote an original proof of the Pythagorean theorem, um, like he was an American Renaissance man and the way he died, when he died, the country named so many things after him. And although the public never seems to have noticed this man, you can, you can find him if you look close enough. And I, there's just a lot in this moment that I think can be teased out of what Garfield can tell us about the presidency and political power in America and what it means to be an influential leader and whether uh, deliberately or not. Uh, so there's, uh, it was a wonderful journey learning about his life and, uh, 
it provokes thought. Mm-hmm. Historian and biographer C.W. Goodworth has been our guest today. C.W. Goodyear will be at Smithsonian Associates in July. We will have dates and details within the show notes today on the website, so please check those out. And by all means, check out this fantastic book by C.W. Goodyear titled President Garfield from Radical to Unifier. What a fascinating man. What a wonderful conversation. I've, I've so enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much for for this book and all your research. Congrats on it. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing you at Smithsonian Associates coming up here. C.W., good year. Oh, thank you. And the, uh, the feeling's mutual, Paul. So oh, thanks thank so much. You. Thank you. My thanks to Smithsonian Associates, C.W., Goodyear author of the new book, President Garfield, From Radical to Unifier. C.W. Goodyear will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up, and the title of his presentation there is Rediscovering James Garfield from Radical to Unifier. Please check out our website or Smithsonian Associates' website for more details, all of which will be in our show notes today. My thanks always to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. My thanks to you always. My wonderful, not old, better show audience here on Radio and Podcast, please be well, be safe, and let's talk about better. The Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates Art of Living interview series on Radio and Podcast. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week. Music.